Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Eighty years ago, on September 21st, Connecticut and New England saw the hurricane of 1938 devastate the region. Coming up, state historian Walt Woodward will join us to reflect on that historic storm. Do you remember your relatives talking about the hurricane of 38? You can join our conversation. That's later. This week marks another milestone related to Mother Nature. Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico one year ago. Connecticut Public Radio has been following recovery efforts and reporting on the Puerto Ricans who've relocated to our state. The reporting project is documented in a new CPTV documentary airing this Thursday. Coming up, WNPR journalist Ryan Karen King joins us to talk about the documentary The Island Next Door. But first, Hurricane Florence. The storm's intensity has been downgraded over the last few days, but its impact is still being felt across the Carolinas with record rainfall causing devastating flooding and deaths. Now, this storm comes on the heels of a summer that has been among the hottest in Connecticut and other New England states. That's according to the National Weather Service. Scientists say more powerful storms and rising temperatures are caused by climate change, and projections show the heat and severe weather will only get worse unless we make some changes. For more, joining us by phone is Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's a climate reporter for The New York Times. Kendra, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you so much for having me. You can also join the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Kendra, I mentioned that 2018 is proving to be one of the hottest on record, but in recent years, we've seen uh, other um, heat records uh, coming through. What are some of the reasons behind that? Uh, Climate change, (laughs) basically. Um, That's kind of a simplification, but it's kind of, we often think of climate change as something that is going to happen, but it is clear and climate scientists themselves are saying that climate change is here. And so it's not just that we have one hottest year on record or two hottest year on record, but essentially like the past 10 hottest years, 10 years have been some of the hottest years on record. In fact, if you're under the age of 40, basically, you've never experienced a normal temperature year. That's kind of where the trend is at this point, is that it is consistently hot. Now, is there some fluctuation from year to year? Um, sure. So this year is the fourth is on track to be the fourth hottest year on record, not the first hottest year. Um, but like, so it's not going to be that every year is consistently hotter than the year before. But the trend is it is hot and will be hot for the foreseeable future unless we do something to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We all remember uh, how hot it's been uh, this past August. Can you talk specifically about our region here in New England and some of the records that we've seen? Yeah, so one of the things that we're seeing, especially in the Northeast, is, um, and actually across the United States, is it's not just, like, we get sort of very fixated on how hot it is during the day, so like um, 100 degrees or 95 degrees, but some of the records that we're seeing is um, in evening temperatures, and that's actually worse in some ways. Um, so the nighttime temperatures are warming even faster than daytime temperatures, and that's a problem because the human body and a lot of our electronic systems and sort of the way we've our infrastructure sort of depends on our nights being relatively cool, and that's not happening. 
Uh, we're also seeing natural disasters uh, across our country. Let's talk about, I guess, the, the fire season. And is that also a trend uh, as each year is the fire season getting worse out west? Um, yeah, the fire season is getting hotter, the fires are getting bigger, and the fire season is also just extended. So, like, um, the fires are starting earlier and they're running later. Uh, when we think about uh, hurricanes, that's the topic of our show today. Um, we're talking about uh, Hurricane Florence in the Carolinas. Uh, this is just, again, another trend when we've seen devastating storms in the last year. There was Harvey and Maria. Can you talk through with us uh, again, uh, Kendra, about the link uh, the scientists have found between these severe hurricanes and climate change? Can you explain that further? Sure. There are a bunch, unfortunately. Um, one of the first ones is uh, NOAA um, and, you know, researchers in general say to think of warm water as the fuel for um, the engine that is a hurricane. So hurricanes only form in water that is at least, I believe, 85 degrees, I want to say 80 or 80 degrees Fahrenheit, down to 165 feet in the water. So you need a lot of really warm water pretty far deep. And that's why we don't have hurricanes in January. <laughs> but, um, and that's also why some of the most catastrophic hurricanes tend to happen in the late summer and the fall, because that's when the water is the warmest. And in so, terms, and um, go ahead. No, go ahead. In terms of frequency, are we seeing more hurricanes developing each year? So there isn't like a clear signal in terms of frequency, but what we can see is shifts in behavior of the hurricanes. So for example, both Harvey and Florence, um, something called the steering winds collapsed. So to understand what that means is sort of like, generally we kind of think of hurricanes as, we think of the wind speed in a hurricane, right? But we don't think about how quickly it moves over land. And so in the past, hurricanes moved over land much faster. And that's important because the the longer they stay in a single place, the more rain that they can drop. Because of um, the collapse, the theory is that that, um, like changes in the atmosphere due to climate change, but basically is causing this trend. But what we're seeing is is that the hurricanes are lingering longer over land. It happened in Harvey and it happened in Florence. And that's why we're getting the catastrophic flooding that we're seeing. There was kind of the first of its kind pre-storm study on Florence and they determined or they estimated that about 50% of the rain that the Carolinas are seeing can be attributed to climate change. So um, I think in some areas they've already seen like 30 inches of rain. So if not for climate change, they'd have half as much rain. So you're, talk- yeah. so you're talking about when we're thinking about measuring severity, we're looking again at wind speed and, and the flooding that's being seen. Well, so to be clear, so it depends on what you mean by severity. So most people kind of get caught up in the, the, the categories of the wind, so category one, category two, category three type storms. But that scale actually only tells us the wind speed inside of the hurricane. It doesn't tell us about impact and it doesn't tell us about storm surge or moisture. There are additional calculations that need to be done for storm surge. Which is why, um, and then moisture is kind of a completely different scale. So it's possible, like we saw this, so Sandy, for example, in the Northeast, was by the time it um, was never stronger than like a Category 1, but it dropped a ton of water. And it had a pretty big storm surge. And so that's the other way in which climate change is a factor is because of climate change, sea levels are higher. And so the storm surges are potentially higher. Oh, earlier, Kendra, when we were talking about uh, warming temperatures, including uh, uh, sea temperature, I'm just curious when we talk about that, how much has this water warmed up in recent years? Yeah, um, it depends on where exactly in the country that you're looking, but um, I would say warmed up or, sorry, uh, warmed up or risen? Risen. 
Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, between 8 and 14 inches is a reasonable estimation, mm-hmm. depending on where you're looking. Yeah, so it's not a small amount. Uh, on the phone with me is Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's climate reporter for The New York Times. As we uh, look and talk about uh, the hurricane season, uh, with the Carolinas have seen uh, devastation with uh, flooding with uh, uh, this recent uh, storm, Florence, which has now been downgraded. Uh, but as we look across the globe, uh, as we hear again that a uh, planet Earth is getting hotter um, in recent years, Kendra. Some of the other uh, extreme weather events that we're seeing, uh, again, in India, uh, the monsoon season is something that uh, people anticipate each year. But this year, uh, the monsoon season was extremely deadly. And are there, um, I guess, uh, similarities between when we look at severity of the hurricane season here and what we're seeing globally when we think about the monsoons? Yeah. So, um Yes, because there are atmospheric changes happening. So basically, like, the wind currents, um, that's how I like to think of it sort of casually, are changing. And that's because it's super not intuitive, but the, a lot of the way the planet sort of runs in the atmosphere is based on the difference between the te- temperature differences. So the differences between in temperature between the poles and sort of like the, where we are and even the equator, right? But as the climate gets warmer, it doesn't warm equally. The poles are getting warmer than, like, we are, or the, the equator is. And so you're losing that temperature change. And so um, I kind of, it's kind of like a seesaw. Air, like when there's a big temperature change, it's like one person is really low on the seesaw and one person is really high. But the closer that temperature gets, the more balance that you get. And that can cause all sorts of funky things to happen with the atmospheric currents. In the case of the monsoons, there's a couple things. Warm air holds more moisture then cold air. So as the temperature warms, the potential for the monsoon rains to hold more moisture goes up. But also because of what's happening with this, like changes in the current air currents, you're seeing things like the monsoons appearing in places where it didn't normally appear, or the monsoons getting stuck. Um, so like thinking about weather getting stuck is really important because again, um, rainfall depend like the man- the difference between enough rain for your crops and flooding is sort of how long those rains stick around, right? And Kendra, I guess the next question that many of us have is, is it too late? How can we uh, work to reverse this? What are what do scientists tell us? Okay, so it is um, not, it is, not, it is too late to sort of not experience any climate change because of the, it's kind of like trying to stop a freight train, there's a lag in the system. But it, we can, we still have time to stop the most extreme forms of climate change. So getting to four degrees C of warming globally, getting to the point where all of the polar ice caps melt. We're at a point where we can slow things down so that if you have children or grandchildren, they can still sort of experience temperatures similar to the ones that we've experienced. And that means drastically reducing GHG emissions. That means getting greenhouse gas emissions down to zero, essentially. There are some people who argue that we actually need to have negative emissions and find ways of sucking some of that CO2 out of the atmosphere. But basically, um, what's that expression? If you're digging a hole, if you find that you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, (laughs) That's kind of where we are, climactically speaking. Like we need to, if we want to have a planet that is habitable for future generations of humans, then we need to put the brakes on climate change emissions.
I mentioned earlier, Kendra, that you're the climate reporter for the New York Times. Uh, that demonstrates that, that there is a need for reporting on uh, the impacts of climate change uh, on our planet. But also in the dialogue, we hear about uh, deniers of climate change, mm-hmm. including when we see a federal policy uh, being rolled back um, that doesn't take into account that this science shows that we are heading uh, to a, a worse place if changes aren't being made. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's being done on the federal level and, and how things have been, uh, I guess, as I mentioned, uh, fallen back from what the Obama administration put in place? Um, yeah, so I want to make clear that I am a climate reporter for, uh, for the New York Times. We actually have Not several. the climate reporter. Not the climate <laughs> reporter. Um, but yeah, so the administration has taken several steps, such as rolling back the clean power plan. There's talk about rolling back the emission standards for automobiles. Um, but something that I want to make kind of clear is that while, yes, the United States does have people who deny the accepted science of climate change, they're actually in the minority and in the vast major- minority, like more than 80 to 90 percent of Americans accept the science of climate change. Um, and so I kind of it's helpful to think of them as a vocal and sometimes powerful minority, but they're not what the majority of Americans are thinking. And the rollbacks that are happening on the federal level, there are actions being taken on the state and on local levels, even in states that seem somewhat averse to climate change, um, to mitigate those effects. So like even when Florida took, uh, made it like so that on a state level you couldn't say climate change, a lot of municipalities were hiring climate change coordinators and taking steps to reduce the, the effects of sea level rise. And so I think for listeners, it's just really helpful to think about like what can you do or and, and the local and the state level are areas where it's really possible to make action. So when you mentioned local and state efforts, so investments in energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy produced locally, which can also be an uh, economic driver. Um, so these are just um, some steps that I know even Connecticut here that, that we've seen administration taking. And also mitigation, right, because we do have a certain amount of climate change locked into the system. And so that means thinking about where are we building infrastructure? um, Is our infrastructure able to withstand the weather that we're expecting to see because of the change in climate? So one of the things to note with the the natural hazards that we've been having, like from hurricanes to wildfires, is part of the reason they've been so costly is not just that the events are worse but also because more people are living in those areas. So when you look out west and you look at the fires, there are more people living in places that are likely to burn than have in previous generations. When you look at hurricanes, there are more people living in areas that are likely to flood than have happened than have lived there in past generations. And so there has to be some some sort of coordinated planning about trying to make sure that people aren't living in flood zones, that people aren't living in um, in areas that are very likely to um, to be harmed in the case of these weather events. You mentioned there has been a shift in this country uh, for more on the majority, uh, you know, believing that climate change exists because they're seeing the impact uh, uh, where they live? Some of it's because people are seeing the impact of where they live. Um, it's helpful. It's kind of tricky. Like climate denialism is a very, um, there are only like four countries where it's actually very prominent. Um, it's us, it's Canada, it's Australia, and it's Great Britain. And there's a lot of theories as to sort of like why these countries have such an active denialist movement. But also, um, people don't think very much about climate change. I think about it all the time, partly because it's my job, but also because once you start thinking about it, it's really hard to stop. And so most people think about climate change maybe two minutes a month or something. And so it's very easy for them, even if they do accept the science, to not put up a fuss about it. It's not worth having a fight at the dinner table over it. 
When we look at world leadership and uh, with the U.S. announcing it, it wants to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, how does that put the brakes on uh, this issue being taken seriously uh, worldwide? So um, it does make it seem like it's less important. And also the United States is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's not possible to stop um, global warming without the United States being a player. But on the other hand, the Paris Climate Agreement was a voluntary agreement. And many countries don't have plans in place that would allow them to meet that voluntary commitment of reducing greenhouse gas emissions so that there's no more than two degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius worth of warming. So in some ways, I think, at least in the United States, it's really pushing people to be a lot more active and engaged about it and a lot more practical about it than I think if we were limiting action only on the federal level. Kendra Pierre Lewis, again, is a climate reporter for The New York Times. We're going to tweet out some links to your work, Kendra, uh, on our uh, Twitter, at Where We Live. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up this Thursday, one year ago, saw Hurricane Maria devastate the island of Puerto Rico. We're going to get an update on those recovery efforts on the island, as well as the impact here in Connecticut with visual journalist for Connecticut Public Radio, Ryan Karen King, a documentary premiering this Thursday on CPTV. More right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut Public Radio's highlighted the stories of Puerto Ricans after Hurricane Maria devastated the island last September. Now those stories from the Island Next Door reporting project are featured in a new documentary premiering this Thursday on Connecticut Public Television, CPTV. Food wiped out, banking gone, light power gone, health services gone, education non-existent, uh, water, where could you find water during the first days? I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, suffering and death. That's retired teacher and hurricane evacuee Pedro Bermudez talking about what he saw after Hurricane Maria made landfall last September. Now Bermudez would eventually move back to Connecticut he wasn't alone. Connecticut Public Radio's visual journalist, Ryan Karen King, joins us now. Hey, he, Lucy. So nice to see you, Ryan. Yeah, you too. So you and news director Jeff Cohen visited uh, Puerto Rico after that hurricane uh, last uh, September, but you were there last October, about four weeks after the storm. Right. It's, it's been about a year, um, and we're revisiting all of these stories that we told over the past year in about 30, 30 minutes in this, this documentary we've been working on. Remind our listeners you know, why uh, Connecticut Public Radio focused on this project, why you and Jeff went to Puerto Rico. So, so the statistic that you know, you'll hear a lot here is that there are over 300,000 Puerto Ricans who live in Connecticut. Um, but as soon as the storm hit, we looked on social media, and by those stories that we saw there, we knew that this was going to be um, you know, more than a statistic, that this was going to be a local story for us to cover. Um, we saw stories of people in Connecticut, people in Hartford, New Britain, Waterbury, uh, Bridgeport, New Haven, um, cut off from family for days on end, not being able to talk to them because the cell phones were wiped out. 
uh, by Hurricane Maria, the cell phone towers. Um, we, we heard a story from a Hartford city councilman who had to call his, uh, his mother to tell her to dig up all the root vegetables in her backyard so she'd have something to eat. Um, these are incredibly personal stories, and it's not just one. It's, you know, they're, they're hundreds and hundreds of stories. Um, and as uh, my boss uh, and news director here, Jeff Cohen, would say, this, we had a duty to tell them. You mentioned the local connection. So these were the people you were talking to here in Connecticut before you even left for Puerto Rico. Um, talk us through, again, the, the groundwork that was done. Right. So and we, we didn't, we, you know, we went four weeks after the storm. So we didn't have, um, you know, necessarily a lot of time uh, to tell it because we only went for a week. Um, so we really tried to do as much groundwork as possible, trying to figure out who is there, who is going to be going to the island to help with the relief effort. Um, Puerto Ricans here um, who felt that their government wasn't helping their family members. We, you know, we heard plenty of stories of people just being entirely cut off weeks on end um, without any supplies, water, electricity. Um, and there were people here, family members, who were incredibly frustrated about that and wanted to take things into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, listeners and viewers uh, see this documentary uh, later this week, uh, you made a, uh, a conscious decision that d- there would be no no narrator. Tell mm-hmm. us why. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're and when the storm hit, we weren't the authoritative experts on Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, we, we probably spent a, me- a month collectively there and spent a lot of time reporting here. But still, it's it's a lot different when you're actually living day to day in in that situation. Um, you know the harsh environment that was, uh, you know, the island's reality for several months. Um, we could go in and go out and tell those stories, but we wouldn't be living that experience. Um, so, you know, in the decision not to have a narrator, we wanted people's people who experienced that, who lived that, um, to be the voice of of this documentary. Uh, remind us when you first went to the island, what you saw, and who were some of the people you followed? So as I mentioned before, we, we saw a community relief effort that sort of sprung out of the fact that people were frustrated that, the, that their family members were still cut off um, from aid weeks after. Um, we went, to, you know, in, in our first trip, we, we went with uh, former Hartford City Councilman Luis Coto to deliver supplies across the island. Um, and we visited two places where they both hadn't seen anyone before. They thought we were FEMA. And we'll hear uh, Luis Coto here talking about that. Everyone assumed I was FEMA. We were asked, are you FEMA? Um, someone just asked me right now when we went to look for this woman, are you guys FEMA? Right. That means that they have not seen FEMA and everyone's saying FEMA, FEMA, FEMA. Uh, so the one story of Hurricane Maria was the impact on the island. But in the documentary, uh, you also shift to Hartford because the other part of the story were the thousands trying to leave the island to come and live uh, possibly with the relatives here in Connecticut or Massachusetts. Um, tell us about them. So uh, what ended up happening, um, as you mentioned, is lots of people ended up coming here. Um, most of those people ended up living with family members here. You know, when you have family members who lose their homes, uh, you know, you're going to probably offer up your place to stay, whether you have the resources to support extra people or not um, within your house. So, we, you know, we heard stories about people living in living rooms, um, people like 10 people cramming into a house because they had nowhere else to go. Um, in Hartford, um, a lot of people also were uh, 
brought here by FEMA to live uh, at the Red Roof Inn and other hotels across the state. Uh, FEMA paid uh, for people to live there. Um, but that wasn't an easy experience. A lot of people came here in the middle of winter. Um, the climate is a lot different uh, than Puerto Rico. So we had lots of people that didn't have the right, you know, winter clothing. Um, the program, the FEMA program doesn't include food. So a lot of people were in these kitchenless uh, um, hotel rooms without food. Um, and um, UConn, the University of uh, Connecticut and the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving commissioned a study um, where they uh, basically interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people in, you know, either family members or people going through this experience and found that that while a lot of people came here, um, for, to escape the conditions on the islands, to get away from you know the conditions where they didn't have food and water, um, they still were hungry here and, and lacked resources. Um, and we'll hear now from uh, UConn professor Charles Venator Santiago, who ran that study and talked to us for the documentary. What we found is that people living in poverty assume most of the burden of addressing the displaced Puerto Ricans. In other words, whereas FEMA brought a group of people the majority of people who came here came to live in, with families who are living in poverty. Uh, today we're focusing here on where we live on this new documentary premiering on CPTV later this week, Thursday actually. It's called The Island Next Door. It's the same name of the reporting project from Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, Ryan Karen King, a visual journalist here, worked on that documentary. Uh, he and news director Jeff Cohen uh, went to the island several times over the last year uh, to see about recovery efforts uh, since Hurricane Maria, but also the story of many who came uh, to Connecticut uh, to seek shelter. Did the evacuees go back? A lot of them did. Um, Charles Venator Santiago, that UConn professor we just heard from, told us that about 13,000 people, they estimate, came here in the months following the hurricane. Um, but a good majority of actually them actually, they think, went back. There's no, it's hard for us to track that. Um, so people could have you know, gone to other states where the job opportunities were better. Um, but Venator Santiago also told us that half of those people that they interviewed told us that they had family that they expected to be coming to uh, Connecticut again. Um, so this is, you know, this is a, a tough situation because for, you know, a lot of these people, the island is home. Um, but there are more storms on the horizon. You know, we heard in the last segment that these hurricanes could continue and continue to get worse. Um, and this was a mobile population before Maria. Um, people, you know, were coming here because of the tough economic situation on the island. And Maria only exacerbated that. More people are coming, more people are leaving. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy situation to be in, to be constantly on the move. You mentioned the economic situation in Puerto Rico before uh, Hurricane Maria uh, caused uh, hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans to leave the island. In fact, Washington Post reported that the government of Puerto Rico is estimating by the end of this year, 200,000 more residents will leave uh, the island to move to places like New England, also Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Uh, now, you and Jeff went back to uh, Puerto Rico this past July to see, um, again, about what was going on there and, and the recovery. And this was right after, I think, there was a tropical storm mm -hmm. in that yeah, area. Yeah. How are people preparing for this hurricane season? So I, th I think, Lou, uh, I think um, Jeff actually called in to the show as the tropical, the remnants of the tropical storm were passing through. Uh, we were in San Juan at the time, and later that day, um, we went elsewhere where people were, were you know, working on houses. Um, so, you know, I would say that people are stocking up, right? People are 
you know, we talked to Luis Coto's sister uh, in her town of Citra, and uh, she's stocking up. She has two bottles of uh, two barrels of uh, water, um, a solar lantern, medication for her elderly parents. Uh, but what she told us, she's not emotionally ready for another storm. This is an uh, this is a traumatic event to live through. Her parents, um, as you hear in the documentary, her dad, you know, had his hand on the door. Um, and it was blown away by Maria's fierce winds. Um, that's not an easy thing to live through. And neither is the months following the hurricane. Day to day living in the heat of a tropical island, often without water, often without food. Um, this is not something that, you know, people are ready to live through. No one's ready to live through that, never mind uh, having to do it again. Uh, we mentioned it's uh, still hurricane season. Uh, we see aerial pictures of uh, blue tarps over people's homes on the island. So where uh, where in the process is the island in terms of rebuilding? Um, so we've heard uh, in previous reports that hundreds of thousands of people haven't qualified for FEMA aid. Uh, many of them didn't have the right paperwork. A lot of people didn't have title to their houses. We reported on that a little bit. Um, As I mentioned before, as the tropical storm was bearing down, or rather the remnants of the tropical storm were were blowing through, still knocking out power despite just a little bit of rain and flooding in some areas, um, we spent the day with a man named Ramon Morales. He's a former Rhode Island resident, and he, at the time, uh, as the the hurricane was blowing through, and he didn't, he lost power at his home, uh, lost his roof to the hurricane, had a had a, uh, a blue tarp over it. Um, but that day, he was somewhere else. He was uh, at another man's house fixing his roof because Ramon just didn't have the supplies to rebuild his home. So we'll hear from here now. Uh, hear from him now. Before, ah, nobody cares about storm. Nobody knew what a storm was. Now they know you don't mess with another nation. So that's Ramon Morales. He's a resident of Manatee, Puerto Rico, uh, and a former Rhode Island resident. It's something that struck me when I was watching this documentary, again, The Island Next Door, premiering on Thursday, uh, which is the one-year anniversary since uh, Hurricane Maria uh, hit the island. Uh, You also uh, spoke uh, to some veterans uh, who went to help. And uh, this one particular veteran, uh, Ray Guas, told you that, you know, a lot of people still see the island as if it were a third world country. Can you talk us through what he told you? Right. So Guas was on a team. um, And to this day, they're still working. It's a it's a nonprofit that he runs um, that essentially uh, was formed in response to Hurricane Maria. They were bringing water filtration devices around the island. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see a little bit of that. Um, But his point of view that he shared with us is that Guas is someone who lives in Connecticut now um, and had family on the island growing up. And he would visit there. But it was in the context of going on vacation. You know, he said he would drink beers with his family, um, you know, and, and have a good time on the island and going there as part of the relief effort. Uh, he saw a very different version of, of you know, his parents and his grandparents' home. Um, something that we heard over and over again, an anecdote or a, a metaphor that we heard over and over again is that the, the winds of Maria, you know, blew off the leaves of the trees and revealed uh, a lot of the problems that had preexisted the storm. Um, and in this current moment when we have, you know, uh, President Trump tweeting and, and taking jabs at, you know, either politicians on the island or, uh, you know, rejecting the, the latest 
um, updated death count, um, many people, you know, that that isn't political. That's personal for these people, um, th- especially the death count. You know, we visited a, a woman um, in Morovis, Puerto Rico, um, a former Hartford resident who who considers her own stepfather to be lost to Maria. He was sick before the storm. They didn't have electricity for months and months, and he needed uh, oxygen, and it took a, a severe toll on his health, and he, and he passed away um, before they got electricity. Um, so, you know, this is, this is a tough situation um, for them to be in right now. You mentioned the conflicting messages uh, since uh, Hurricane Maria. Again, when you uh, hear again President Trump uh, tweeting that uh, the the death uh, count uh, caused by that storm um, is not accurate. Uh, more than three thousand people did die after uh, Hurricane Maria. So I'm curious uh, in your reporting and from talking with people both here and on the island, um, how are they seeing uh, the country's views change on Puerto Rico? So the you know, the country as a whole, I think, <laughs> simply put, for the first time, um, probably a lot of people realize that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Um, here in Connecticut, uh, I think a lot of people recognized Connecticut for the first time as as a hub for, you know, Puerto Rican people to be coming to. Um, so something that Charles Venator Santiago also told us uh, for, within the documentary is that um, something he saw was that the solidarity between Puerto Ricans on the island and the mainland um, grew um, because as a response to the government not helping them, they, they had to help each other. Um, and this is something that he said he hadn't seen quite to the, the same extent. Um, and it was because the trauma of the storm was so great and, and they needed to help each other. Uh, We've been talking with visual journalist at Connecticut Public Radio, Ryan Karen King, uh, through uh, his reporting uh, work on the island next door. It's now been turned into a documentary that, again, listeners can see on CPTV. Uh, Can you uh, tell us again how people can watch this documentary, Ryan? Uh, Right. So I guess it's Tuesday now. So in two days on Thursday at 8 p.m., if you are a traditional broadcast TV viewer um, or just, you know, want to turn on CPTV, uh, it'll be uh, airing at 8 p.m. And uh, we'll probably post it on literally every social media thing we have here. Um, But if you go to CPTV.org, you can also watch it there as well. And we're going to have more information uh, to uh, connect our listeners to uh, that documentary and where to see it at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Ryan, Karen King, always a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thanks for having me, Lucy. I really appreciate it. And can I ask you, I know you've been hard at work on this documentary. Any more trips uh, scheduled for Puerto Rico? Uh, Not at the current moment. um, But, you know, as we uh, sort of wait out the end of hurricane season, you know, hoping that there isn't another storm, that the potential, you know, as we mentioned before, people are worried about that happening and don't know what that would do to their island. Ryan, thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, do you remember your relatives talking about the Hurricane of 38? Now, that storm caused devastation in Connecticut and throughout New England. State historian Walt Woodward joins us after to the break to reflect on the storm's legacy 80 years later. You can join us, too, on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This month marks 80 years since the hurricane of 38, the deadliest to hit Connecticut and New England. State historian Walt Woodward is with us to reflect on that disastrous storm. Do you remember it? Do you have a relative that survived the hurricane of 38? Join our conversation. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Again, I want to wel- welcome Walter Woodward back to the show. Good so, morning, Lucy. So I mentioned that you're a Connecticut state historian. You're also associate professor of history at UConn. So uh, take us back to uh, 1938. Uh, When we think about this storm, it wreaked havoc uh, in multiple states. But here in Connecticut, how many people died? Well, in all of New England, over 600 people died. But in Connecticut, 85. The, The death toll was so bad from this hurricane that they literally ran out of coffins. I mean, it was it was a true catastrophic disaster. When we think about a hurricane season, which we're in right now, there's a lot of advancements in science and technology to be able to track these tropical storms uh, in the Atlantic. But back then, there really was no early warning for storms. Well, that's the thing. There were no weather satellites the way we have now. The best information they could get about hurricanes came from ships out at sea because they would track and report into the weather service. Well, they had warned, because this storm was out in the Atlantic, they had warned ships to stay ashore or either to get away from the storm area three or four days before. So no one knew. They weren't getting information about the storm. So the real problem was they knew there was a hurricane out there. They expected it to do what most hurricanes do when they come north, and that's veer away from the Atlantic coast. But instead, an unusual weather situation had set up so that there was a high north of Bermuda and a high in the east coast of the United States. And it created a lane that not only carried that hurricane right into New England, but because of the nature of the highs and the flow of the jet stream, it speeded it up. So when it hit New Haven at 2.30 in the afternoon on Wednesday, September 21st, 1938. The winds were 100 miles an hour sustained, but it was moving at 60 to 100 miles an hour. So you add the 60 and the 100 together. So it came ashore with 160 or higher mile an hour winds. It was and a complete surprise. You mentioned it made landfall in the afternoon on that day, September 21st, 1938. So in New Haven, did people have any advance warning in terms of like just within uh, an hour? I'm just curious where where people went. They saw the weather getting worse. It's interesting. In Saybrook or Fenwick, which is a little bit away, Catherine Hepburn was at the family summer cottage. Now, her summer cottage was three stories and came with servants, (laughs) different than most of ours. But she uh, had gone swimming out in the sound, as she always did every morning, and she kind of liked it because the tides were really giving her a challenge. She said the current was great. She went and played golf that day, got a hole-in-one on the ninth hole. She ended up – so she, you know, this was her day, came home, was reading, and she noticed the wind and the water picking up. They went inside. In almost no time in the afternoon, her mother, they said, maybe we should leave. Her mother said they shouldn't. By the time they realized they needed to get out, the water was up to the windows. And they got out of the house by climbing out the windows, getting to high ground. They turned around and they saw their three-story house blown away. 
Wow. And so now this was hitting the, the coastline in Connecticut. Uh, were, they, were people able to warn people further north? This was the problem. It, as it hit, it hit with such force that it knocked out the infrastructure. Radio stations went down. Uh, roads were impassable. So the, really the warning that people would have gotten they didn't get, and that continued all the way up New England. This storm just tracked up the Connecticut River almost into Canada, and it, it came ashore around 2.30, and by midnight, it was in Canada, and the next morning, it had fallen apart, but so had the state. The state was just a total mess. When was the last time New England had been hit uh, with a hurricane of this kind of magnitude? Well, that's the last time had been 123 years before that in 1815. It was, you know, it was almost an identical storm. But this is early in the 19th century. We don't have the kind of infrastructure. The population is not as great as it was. So it was a terrible storm. But by the time you get to 1938, you know, we're an industrial society, and the disaster was just a completely different dimension. Oh, well, you mentioned that the storm moved up uh, the Connecticut River Valley. I actually live right on the border of Connecticut and Massachusetts in the town of Suffield, and I have this amazing picture that a neighbor shared with me of these trees on top of the house I now live in. And so it's interesting when you think about uh, an inland uh, town getting devastated in that way because of the winds back in 38. The, the forest damage in New England was equally catastrophic. And wow, that is some tree on your house. And these weren't small trees. By and large, many of the trees that went down were some of the biggest and oldest in New England. Here was the problem. It had been a summer not much unlike this one. It was hot. It was very wet. And Connecticut had had terrible floods two years before. So they were worried about flooding. And the week before this storm hit, there had been four or five days of almost continuous rain, where in some cases, east of the Connecticut River, it fell at two inches an hour. So the ground was saturated already. They were worried in Hartford about flooding. They were actually out putting sandbags up near the Colt building because of the rains the week before. So the people who are working are looking north up the river, worrying about the water that's going to come down. Then they get blindsided from behind by these 80-mile-an-hour winds. When it hits Hartford, the sustained winds are still at 80 miles an hour, highest winds ever recorded in Hartford. You uh, mentioned that anecdote about uh, Catherine Hepburn's uh, summer uh, cottage, but walk us through some of the other devastation uh, that uh, residents saw as we went further north. Obviously, lots of buildings flattened. Absolutely. They estimate that in New England, 20,000 buildings were destroyed. Another 70,000 were damaged. Uh, Because this happened in September, children were in school. I know of a case in, in... Rhode Island, where there were kids on a school bus who actually were lost in the hurricane because they were trying to cross a causeway and they just got caught up in the storm surge. Mm -hmm. Storm surge is one of the most dangerous forces in a hurricane. As the winds come on shore, they push ahead of them a wall of waves. And I mean, it it comes in like a tsunami. uh, Somebody described 
that looking out into the sound and seeing as far as they could see to the horizon, the water had been sucked out and now it was coming back in in one huge wall. But after that first wave hits, it continued for about an hour. The, the storm surge is the thing on the shoreline, just devastated housing. And anybody who was in the path of that when it came ashore was in mortal danger. Not everyone was killed, but a lot of people suffered. You mentioned the shoreline. Uh, tell us about what happened in Stonington. I understand some people were actually trapped in a train car. Well, there, yeah, there was a, a New York to Boston train, the Bostonian, and it was on a causeway outside of Stonington. So they actually built the rail line up above the water. Well, this train is trying to get across a couple of hundred of passengers and the wind starts blowing the cars and they're blowing in windows. The conductor reacts to the emergency really well. He says, get everybody up in the first or second car behind the engine and uncouple all the other cars, which people risk their lives to do that. Passengers were panicked. Some jumped out of the windows into the water. Those people lost their lives. The ones who came forward, the conductor just throttled up the engine. And they say as they fought through the water, they were hit by smashed hulls of boats and flying houses. So they're, they're not only fighting through the water, they are battered by debris. As it, but they did make it to land. So it was a story they lived to tell their grandchildren about. And now I get to tell you. Now, meanwhile, in the city of New London, it was burning. New London faced a disaster. The downtown was chaotic. Boats came up into the streets. Cars were twisted. It's, you know, it's a kind of devastation you can just imagine in your worst storm movie. And then sparks from down power lines caught the downtown business district on fire. There were four blocks that were burning. So many trees had fallen. So many, so much of the infrastructure was destroyed. The fire trucks couldn't get there. So it took hours to actually get to the point where they could fight the fire. This is where we live. You're hearing Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward as we reflect on the hurricane of 38, 80 years ago uh, this month when that uh, hurricane devastated Connecticut and many other New England states. If you uh, remember your relatives talking about that hurricane, we want to hear from you. Join our conversation. Uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, so, Walt, uh, the next morning came, September 22nd, and uh, again, you'd mentioned that the state was flattened pretty much in terms of um, going up through uh, the river valley. How long did it take the state to clean up? Well, the trees alone, it took five years before they could say they had fully recovered from what that tree damage was. Uh, the The cost of the damage in today's dollars was something like $1.8 And one of the things that you know, we often forget or we don't think about in 38, it's the Great Depression. People are losing everything at a time where many of them have almost nothing. So whatever they have left is destroyed in this storm. And it's a major, it's a major catastrophe on a human scale. The WPA sent 100,000 workers into New England to help clean up from this disaster. Uh, for most people, life 
became very difficult, and it was a slow, it was a very slow recovery. Now, when we look at the infrastructure that Connecticut has today, um, remnants of buildings uh, or uh, you mentioned all of the old growth forests that were devastated. But when we look around the state of Connecticut, do we still see hints of the hurricane of 38? Well, you know, if you go along the riverfront, along the trail and you look, there are flood stage markings all along the way. And of course, one of the one of the things that happened in the wake of the hurricane was three or four days later huge floods come down the Connecticut River. So after terrible floods two years before, we have catastrophic floods again. And the, the high water mark is still shown on the bridges. I don't know which one. It may be the Bulkley or the Morgan, but down along the riverfront. Um, there are places throughout Connecticut where if you know where to look, you can find these markings from the storm. But, you know, Nature's pretty resilient. You don't I mean we are we are as a state we are more forested today than we were in the 1930s significantly more so. So you wouldn't have a sense I think of just how terrible it was then because many of the, you know a lot of the things have grown back. People people do two things. We recover and we forget. You know, we, we so that's why when you go down to the shore, you see hundreds and hundreds of cottages built right along the sound. I, anyone who remembered 1938 would just shake their head and say, you know, one day you're going to regret that you did that. Well, look at Superstorm Sandy, where a lot of the, these beach homes were uh, devastated and destroyed. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I mean, Sandy was truly bad, but it was nothing like 1938. Walt Woodward is Connecticut State historian. Uh, before we go, you're working on a podcast about the circus and more about P.T. Barnum's life in Connecticut. Uh, tell us briefly about that, and we hope to have you back soon. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, American Experience is doing this fabulous documentary, October 8th and 9th, called The Circus. And as part of this, Connecticut Public Media asked me to do a couple of podcasts about P.T. Barnum, who, of course, the greatest showman. And so we did one on what Barnum's contribution to the circus was and another one on Barnum's involvement in Connecticut. And they're, they are absolutely great stories. I think everyone will be surprised about what they hear. We look forward to hearing those podcasts soon. Again, Walt Woodward, Connecticut State Historian. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.